This episode is sponsored by Elorm Empire. Shop Elorm Empire. Experience the next gen in technical athletic gear. Ergonomically engineered for yoga, running, hit, office, or travel. Get the latest gear that empowers you. Women's sportswear and jewelry with the most innovative and classic designs. We are the future of athletic gear. Unlock your inner strength with Elorm Empire. We're not just a brand, we're a lifestyle. To save, use coupon code SHARINGLIFELESSONS20 for 20% off. Welcome to episode 49 of Sharing Life Lessons. This is season 5. We are one spirit, one soul, and together we are creating a library of stories. I am your host, Hamida, and I want to bring you stories because stories inspire, stories teach, and stories heal. Listeners, first off, I want to throw some statistics at you from the National Alliance of Mental Health. One in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. One in 20 U.S. adults experience serious mental illness each year. Another staggering statistic is that an estimated 49.5% of adolescents aged 13 to 18 suffer from mental illness. This means if you have two children in that age bracket in your family, then there is a high probability that at least one of them is suffering from mental illness. Why am I giving you these statistics? Because this is what we are going to be talking about today. If I was addressing you live from a stage, and I would ask you to raise your hands if you or anyone you know is suffering from mental illness, I would be shocked if any of you had not raised your hands. If this is such a rampant phenomena in today's times, then why do we not talk about it enough? Why is being mentally ill or talking about mental illness stigmatized in our society? Let's change that together and start talking about it right here and right now. I am thrilled to introduce our guest for today. She is a very smart young woman, and the reason I know that is because she is my daughter Karina's very close friend. Both young women are seniors at Amherst College in Massachusetts. I was so happy when Karina told me that Nissan would like to be a guest for sharing life lessons. I love it when our youth bravely come forward to try to make a difference. Nissan dreams to make her mark in the field of neuroscience and psychiatric disorder, and I am confident that one day she will. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Nissan Shele. Nissan, welcome to Sharing Life Lessons. It's wonderful to have you on the show. It's so heartwarming when the youth come out and share their life lessons, because uh, as we all know, it's not that life teaches you more lessons as you grow older. Everyone's learning lessons. And when the youth share it, it's so special. So thank you for coming over to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this too. Great. Nissan, start us off by telling us something about yourself, please. My name is Nissan. I'm 22. I'm a neuroscience major at Amherst College, due to graduate in May. And I would say I'm at that transitioning part of my life where I both look back and reflect on the last four years and look ahead and just be excited about what's to come. 
You're graduating in May. So tell us, how is that? You're going to be getting out of this controlled environment. So you're an international student. You came from Turkey to the U.S. and then you immediately were placed into Amherst. So it really was a controlled environment for you. And now you're going to go into the real world. How does that feel? Is it scary? Is it exciting? Is it bittersweet? I think it's all of those things at once. It has been a controlled environment in some ways, but then on the other hand, it was my big world experience because I was coming from Turkey and just a completely different continent, uh, a country I, I'd never been before. I hear you. It takes me back to the year I came into this country from India for graduate studies. And you're right, it was a huge transition for me as well. So Nisan, really looking forward to hearing your story. Do tell us your story. I guess what you need to know to really understand is that I come from a upper middle class family. My parents sort of had a choice when I was growing up to either invest in houses and cars or my education because the education system in Turkey is really bad, the public schools especially. And my family chose to invest in my education and I'm very grateful for that. But it's always created this expectation that I perform at my best. Mm -hmm. And throughout my life I have, I've gone into the best high school in Turkey and then got here at Amherst College. And throughout high school and college, I found myself in this environment where just a bunch of kids who appear to be extremely functional and extremely successful, but actually deep down, very dysfunctional. So can you tell us more about that? How can someone who is so highly functional really deep down be dysfunctional? What do you mean by that? Yeah, what I mean is, and this included me as well, on the surface, when you're an outsider looking in, it looks perfectly great. I went to the best schools. I was getting great grades always. My relationship with my parents it was good. I had a friend group. I wasn't socially isolated in that regard either. You know, I wake up since freshman year, like 7.30 in the morning, go to bed at 11. I have regular sleep schedule. I work out several times a week. So when you make a list of things that are going right in my life, it's a pretty long list. And but then none of that sounds to me like dysfunctional at all. No, it's very functional. But then that sort of is on the surface of a lot of things that have formed as trauma and as mental illness in my life. And it's created this facade that I felt that I needed to keep up. And I saw that others were also trying to keep up to mask what was going on deep down. When did you first find out and how that deep down you were dysfunctional? I remember the summer of my 
freshman year. Yes, my freshman year of high school mm-hmm. into my sophomore year. I remember this. It was almost like a switch in my brain. You know, before then, I was as well adjusted as you can be, uh, a normal kid. And then after that, I spent an entire year sort of crying every day and being upset and just not really knowing why. Mm-hmm. Even though I came out of that depressive episode, all of it never went away. And so I just became, like you said, really high functioning in this dysfunctioning normal. There was always something that was heavy on the inside, but then on the outside, you couldn't tell. Nissan, based on statistics, you are not the only one. There are too many young folks who are going through mental health issues. I'm definitely not the only one. I'm one of so many people. And there's that stigma around mental health that is, you know, a person, if they're dysfunctioning, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. Someone could be having the best year of their life and just not be happy and look their best and be really miserable. Mm-hmm. I think seeing it in other people also made me recognize what was going on as well. Is there one cause for it? Is there a root cause? Is there many things? Like, I know one thing you said was your parents expected you to perform. So I'm assuming there was pressure there to perform. But is that the only thing? So talk to us about contributing factors. Yeah, I think that was definitely a part of it. The expectations I've sort of applied to myself. At one point, it transformed from parents expecting to me expecting and accepting nothing but perfection, which life doesn't do. (laughs) And I mean, there's a genetic factor. I have bipolar disorder running in my family. Mm -hmm. So I think that must be a factor. And other than that, I think one of the biggest contributors is the fact that in my family environment, we don't really talk about feelings. Mm -hmm. And that lack of communication, that lack of understanding and recognizing when someone's upset, when someone's angry, when someone's frustrated, when you feel you're not entitled to those emotions and you can't communicate them, it's very hard to let them ride their course through. Instead, you kind of become stuck. What do you think would have made it better for you in your family so that you may not have ended up with this scenario? Yeah, I wish what would have happened is when I said, I'm upset, my parents would be, yes, you are. And that is okay. Versus what did they say? You don't have anything to be upset about. Mm which is very human to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, point out somebody, all the good things they have going on in their life. But the, the outside doesn't necessarily correlate with the inside. They're 
two different environments. So those who are parents, and if you're listening, think about the times that you have told your kids you have nothing to complain about. Look at how privileged you are. Look at what you have that others don't have. And Nisan, what I hear you say is that even if you have everything physically, you could still internally feel upset. And if you're allowed to feel upset for a short period of time, then you can cope with that upsetness. And I just made up that word, upsetness better. Yeah, exactly. Recognizing emotions and following that emotion and trying to understand what it's trying to tell you rather than brushing it aside. I think a lot of parents, I think my parents especially, thought of it as if I'm upset that they're failing at something, that they're failing to provide me something, give me something. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that at that moment, that emotion is there. And you're saying if that is the case, the best to do is to acknowledge to your child or your friend or whoever you're having a relationship with your spouse that that emotion exists and allow them to have that emotion. Exactly. That's great. And here's a little story from my end, because I am also one of those parents where I do allow them that emotion, but then I feel like I need to fix it for them. And then finally, one day I heard Karina tell me that this is how I feel and I just need you to listen to me. There is no fixing needed here. That is when it clicked. And now when they tell me something like this, I know I just have to step back and give them that space. Yeah, exactly. My mom and I went through a very similar phase where she was trying to fix a lot of the things that I was feeling, a lot of the things that I was doing to cope with it. And she sort of tried to tackle all of it. But with mental health, there's often very little other people can do other than to support. And like you said, there's nothing to fix here. Sometimes emotions are just emotions. Like Mm -hmm. being upset isn't necessarily a negative thing. We just perceive it as a negative thing. And there's life lesson number two, that having an emotion is not a negative thing. Mm -hmm. It could seem like a negative thing. I'm upset. I am angry. I am down. All these are negative words, but having those emotions is absolutely normal, natural. And everyone should rightfully be allowed to feel them. Yeah. You you have to accept that as much as you welcome happiness and joy in your life. That is actually very profound. Yeah, I spend a lot of time being upset at my own upsetness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, I fell into the same trap because I was also looking from an objective point of view, that outside facade where I was like, these things are going well in my life. Then why am I sad? Why am I upset? Why am I crying? Why am I worried? I don't have anything to be worried about, but it's not that simple. And I wish I could go back and tell myself that just don't, don't mess with the emotion itself. Just let it run its course. (laughs) 
And so how are you coping with that now? The fact that you're even talking about it on a podcast, you must have come a long way. Talk to us about that journey. Talk to us about what helped you, who helped you, and what are your coping mechanisms now? Yeah. I mean, as a treatment, I am going to therapy and I will be the first one to admit that it's never an easy journey. You got to find the right therapist and find that bond that you feel safe. My freshman year, I saw a therapist who I regularly lied to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And obviously at that point, when you're not putting in the work, it's not going to help you. As of September, I've started on medication, which is helping a lot. So I've got those two treatment options playing hand in hand. It was a it was a very big step, especially the medication, because it's so stigmatized taking mm-hmm. medication. And I had to sort of move past my own judgments and push past that and say, this is for my well-being and say that everything I've been thinking about taking medication, that is false. That is not true. So the stigmatism on taking medication, now that you've been taking it for five months, tell us why you think it should not be stigmatized. It should definitely not be stigmatized, I think. I mean, obviously there are situations where it's appropriate and there are situations where it's not appropriate. And that's for a medical professional to decide. But if a medical professional is thinking that that might be the right choice for that person, I would suggest taking that route. Because when I was... This is actually funny. When I was first thinking about starting my medication, my healthcare provider told me, she said, you know, you could get at a place where you feel better. Yes, you will. Therapy will get you there. Addressing all these maladaptive coping mechanisms will get you there. But medication will make it easier. And don't you think you deserve that ease. Don't you think you deserve it being as fast as it can be? And that changed my attitude towards it. And it worked out for you in exactly the same way you think that it made it easier for you? Was she right? She was right. And I was wrong in that I was expecting it to be sunshine and rainbows. But that's not normal functioning. Normal functioning is you have those highs and lows and Mm -hmm. you just go through them as you do. So now when I get upset, I get upset and then it goes away. (laughs) Because you allow yourself to get upset. Yes. Yeah, that's huge. Just allowing your emotions to be what they are is huge. I mean, I'm not saying anybody is perfect at it and neither am I, but it's really nice to hear you say that if you're having an emotion, Just allow it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So I'm still on coping mechanisms. You told me about your therapy and you told me about medication. What else? Is there anything else that helped you? Yeah, I think community is really important. And I would highly recommend anybody who's feeling alone to go seek out those connections that feel 
really special to them. I was really lucky at Amherst to find a wonderful group of women who one of them is your daughter, (laughs) Karina. And I love them. I think as I love, like I'm an only child, but I think that's, that it's a very familial sibling-like bond that we have with each other. And that support system has been life-changing. I realized that, and this is through therapy as well, that I've been kind of expecting my parents to do a lot of heavy lifting in understanding and and regulating my emotions. And I was expecting that, thinking that they would be able to understand, but there are obviously some gaps, some generational gaps, some cultural gaps since I'm here now. So it was really hard to communicate with them that because they just don't have the mental health framework that Mm -hmm. a lot of others can have and my friends definitely have that and are very very supportive on my off days they will guide me through they will stay with me they will keep an eye on me and I think that has been the most amazing part of it in addition I started working with a eating disorder specialist last fall and I love her like I would love like a young cool aunt (laughs) (laughs) the kind of aunt that you tell things you can't tell your parents that's Uh, awesome yeah and we have a really really amazing connection so building all those support mechanism systems that I couldn't find at home have been really helpful and I would say that It's hard because you need to keep pushing through when you're in a place where all you can think about is how you can't take any more, but it's totally worth it. I hear you. Community is key. But what I want to ask you, Nissan, is if you have this community, what is your role in that community? So the community is there to support you. What are you doing to keep that community together? I would say I play sometimes a motherly figure, like making sure that people keep up with their doctor's appointments and sort of helping out with that. I also think that going through what I've gone through has given me a really good ability to recognize others' emotions and help them through tough situations that they might be going through. I have a very big arsenal of coping mechanism, coping tools for anxiety and for depression. So when somebody's not feeling their best, I often have a list of things that they can do that might help. And if, if they don't think nothing will help them, I will just sit with them and be with them. And that's what they need. And I think we're all learning from each other and I'm learning from them and teaching them at the same time. I love the support that you have for each other. And yes, as far as you being the motherly figure, Karina does say that you go around giving goodnight kisses to everyone before you sleep. I do. So cute. (laughs) That is really sweet. Yeah. I have rounds. I just go room by room and just give everyone a goodnight kiss. 
I wish I had a friend like that in college that did that. <laughs> that is really sweet. Yeah, absolutely. We have this question that we ask each other. We just say, "How are you really?" And that's when we know we're actually asking, like deep down, "How are you right now?" Mm. Nice, incredible. I have this burning question that I need to ask you. Why are you talking about this now? This must not be easy for you. What is in it for you? There is a almost like a selfish reason why I'm talking about this now. In addition to, of course, helping others and breaking the stigma, I um. I wasn't able to talk about this for a very long time. It wasn't a choice. It wasn't. I just couldn't because of the pressure I put on myself, the pressure I perceived from the outside world, and my innate need to feel like I was okay. And that I didn't somehow quote unquote earn the identity of suffering from depression and anxiety, so I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't talk about my own experience, and I couldn't advocate. And so now, for the first time in my life, I can and I feel like I'm in a place where I'm comfortable with. Identifying with my struggles and accepting them, that I kind of like to flaunt it a little and tell it to the world. This is something that I couldn't say before, but look, I can say it now. So of course, I want to relieve the stigma and help others by accepting this as a part of me. But at the same time, it's also about showing myself that I can identify with this now and accept it. I spent a very long time not reaching out for help because I refused to identify with this as a part of me, and I think that if if we normalize this, then. More people will spend less time suffering when they don't need to. So, I think talking about this both helps me and helps me feel like I am helping others. I liked what you said, Nissan. We really need to normalize the conversation on mental health. And kudos to you for beginning the conversation. I know you have shared life lessons throughout this discussion. So, is there anything that you would like to tell the listeners as a final message? I would just encourage people not to make assumptions by what they see, because what we see is often not what's actually going on deep down. And let people have their own truths. And when people say, "Oh, I'm suffering. I need help." To believe them and not respond that by saying all these things are going well. I like that final message, Nissan. Thank you so much again for being on this show. Good luck for the last semester of your college career. 
And uh, hopefully I will see you for graduation if they allow me to come there. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, sweetie. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Listeners, I hope this dialogue was as eye-opening to you as it was to me. And now, as always, here are my key takeaways from my discussion with Nissan. One, having a negative emotion is not a bad thing. We should accept a negative emotion like anger, hurt, feeling upset, just like we would accept being happy or joyful. Two, talking about emotions and feelings in the family or at work is healthy. And not having that kind of open communication with our children, spouses, friends, co-workers, etc. can be hurtful. 3. Community is very important. And to those who are feeling alone, don't try to tackle mental illness on your own. Do seek out those connections that really feel special to you. Lastly, and more importantly, Nissan's final message was to not make assumptions from what we see, because what we see is actually not what is going on deep down. Let people have their own truths. Let People have their own truths. Before we end this episode, I want to say that this is the second episode of Sharing Life Lessons in which a young guest has openly discussed her experience with mental illness. Nikki, in episode number six, had shared that self-awareness is key to treating mental illness. And today, Nissan shows us how to go a step further to accept and allow ourselves and those around us the, emo- the emotions that we are feeling. It takes courage to speak out the way they are. So let's make it worth it for them by learning from their life lessons and together working towards destigmatizing mental illness, openly talking to each other about it at our homes and at work, and finally supporting those who are experiencing mental illness. This brings us to the end of this episode. I'm excited to announce that I will bring you the 50th episode of Sharing Life Lessons next Wednesday. Until then, be happy, be safe, and be well.